But today we do carry on with our series. And we're in, we've been in Philippians for a couple weeks now. And we're going to continue to stay in Philippians. Originally, in about January, when I had uh, kind of set out my series, I set out my sermons from about January until about August. I have until about uh, the end of August. I had them all set out. And I had pretty well the whole summer planned out for Philippians. And partially that was so that if you went away for a bit, you didn't miss, you know, one-third of a three-part series. You might have only missed a couple of verses. Uh, But partially I just thought it's such a great book and we can spend so much time in there. Now, it's been quite thrown off by coronavirus and all these things, so we're on a different track than I had originally planned, but we're going to be in Philippians for a little bit. Uh, so this week, we're still in chapter 2. Today, we're going to look at 11 short verses. Uh, chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 19 to 30, and specifically in those verses, we find two guys that are absolutely worth imitating. So two people worth imitating, and two guys whose, whose lives were good enough that we could also model our lives after some of the things that they did. Before we do that, though, I just want to open us up with a word of prayer. Father God, we just thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, God, for the lessons and for the wisdom and the knowledge contained within. And God, may we, as we study your word, may we not look at it as, as this cold, just words on a page, but Father, may we be reminded that these are your words to us. Lord, that this is your message to us. This is you speaking to us 2,000 years after it was written that these words are still for for me and for others just as true as they were 2,000 years ago. So, Father, may we gain an understanding and may we have an appreciation for how true those words are. And, Lord, may you continue to challenge us and, and give us wisdom. We thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're looking at Philippians 2, verses 19 to 30. And these two guys that we find in this verse, if you're familiar with this section, you're already going to know who the two guys are. Um, But they are two of many people in the Bible that are worth imitating. There are a lot of great people in the Bible worth imitating. Uh, Of course, Paul is the one that jumps right to my mind. He's Paul. I I love Paul's uh, way of writing and uh, his bluntness, but also his just honesty. Uh, There's David. There's Elijah. Elisha. there's, There's Peter, John. Now, these people weren't perfect, of course. We wouldn't want to model our lives after each and every single act that they did. I'm not advocating, you know, taking your sword out with Peter did and cutting people's ears off. I'm not advocating that, but I'm saying that they lived pretty good lives that there's a lot we can learn from imitating after them. Of course, the person that we are called to imitate most is Jesus. We're called to model our lives after Jesus. And I think that these people did a good job modeling their lives after Jesus, and so we can model or imitate them as they imitate Jesus. Um, There are a few people, though, that we don't often look at. They don't get the limelight very often. When we talk about, you know, the the, uh, beacons of faith or the forefathers of faith or all these great pillars of faith, and we model ourselves, we want to look at Moses, and we want to look at all these very famous people, but we don't look at these two guys that Paul talks about. We don't often look at these two guys Paul talks about. But Paul says quite clearly in our section today in verses 19 to 30, he says quite clearly these are two people that you could emulate. And so I'm going to read verses 19 to 30 from chapter 2, and I'm going to read from the ESV today. And so it says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. And so I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. 
I have thought it necessary to also send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all, and he has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. And indeed he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and so that I might be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Paul mentions two guys in this verse, or in these verses, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And if you want to write a word in Microsoft Word that tells you every single time it's wrong, type out Epaphroditus 20 or 30 times. And every time Microsoft will tell you that's not a real word, don't type that out. These are two of perhaps, I would say, Paul's closest friends. Um, I would say they were probably two of the, his closest companions, if you don't like the word friends. Of Timothy, he says he was like a son. He says he was like a son. And of Epaphroditus, he says he was like a brother. So these are close friends. Those are very close words. I wouldn't call all of my friends like my brother, but there are quite a few people that I would say, yeah, he's like a brother to me, or she's like a sister to me. And we reserve those kinds of words for our closest friends or our closest companions. And so these are close friends of Paul's. And so the first thing that I look at when I see this is, who are our close friends? Who are your friends that are like brothers and sisters to you? Who are they? Are they good people? Are they noble people? Are they honorable, loving, servant-hearted people? Do they people? Are they the kind of people that will, uh, when they wear off on you, you will pick up their good habits and you will start to model some of the things that they do? Or are your closest friends whiners and complainers? Are they selfish and only think of themselves and put themselves first? Because that attitude will rub off on you as well. We know this. Inherently, we do know this. When we have kids, you, you wonder about who your kids are going to hang out with. No one says, gee, I really hope my kids hang out with all the wrong kids. I really hope my kids get into the bad crowds, right? No one says that. You want your kids to hang out with the good kids. You want them to be in the good crowd because you know that who your kids hang out with will rub off on you. You know that. We know that inherently. But we think somehow as we get older uh, that maybe this isn't as true anymore. Our friends don't have as much control. The, their behavior doesn't rub off on us. Like, we've somehow outgrown that idea. But it's not true. We haven't outgrown it. Who we hang out with, who we associate most with, our closest friends, their character begins to rub off on us. It begins to influence a little. Now, not everyone will be influenced to the same degree, but at least everyone will be influenced a little bit by your friends. So the first thing that we see is that your crowd or your companions, they do matter. Your friends matter. So beyond that, we're going to look at four other reasons why these close friends of Paul, Timothy and Epaphroditus, why they are worthy of intimidating, or imitating, not intimidating. We shouldn't try to intimidate them. We should try to imitate them. I'm going to mix those up again. I can quite guarantee that. So why these two close friends of Paul are worthy of imitating. Some of these points uh, were put in a commentary by Andy McQuitty, um, but some of these we've elaborated on and made our own. So Four reasons why these close friends of Paul are worth imitating. So verse 19 to 20, we see our point number one. We see it says, people first. People first. Verse 19 to 21 says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I might also be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone else looks out for their own interests, 
not those of Jesus Christ. Now, Timothy, if we know a little bit about Timothy and his history, we know, uh, if I can borrow a term from Harry Potter, he wasn't a, a pureblood. Um, his mother and grandmother were Jewish, converted to Christianity, but his father was a Greek, and his father was evidently not a believer. Right? So he, d- he wasn't born and raised fully in a fully Jewish household. He did learn a lot from his mother and his grandmother, and they instructed him in the ways of the Lord and raised him up, and Paul talks about that a lot elsewhere. But he wasn't a full Jew through and through. But Paul had trained Timothy, and he had been discipling him. And see, Timothy was so trusted that anything that came from Timothy, you could actually have been said probably came from Paul. You know, Timothy was so close to Paul, you would say he was his right-hand man. So if a message came from Timothy, it was like it was coming from the words of Paul himself, because that's how trusted he was. Timothy was actually sent by Paul to go to other cities and to represent Paul there because Paul was in jail and he was unable to go. And so he would send Timothy, he would say, go, be my representative out there. And of Timothy, he says, there's no one like him. There's no one like him who is concerned with your genuine well-being. He says everyone else selfishly looks out for themselves, not their own, or not, sorry, their own interest, not Jesus Christ's interest, but not Timothy. Timothy is genuinely concerned with your welfare. Paul says there's no one like him. That's a pretty high compliment. Timothy actually cared about people. He actually cared about the people he was going to go be with. And, and Timothy, didn't, he didn't care simply because it made him look good or it reflected well upon him or benefited him in somehow. He genuinely cared. But see, the opposite happens in society today sometimes. Sometimes we pretend to care if it will make us look good. We pretend to care if it will benefit us in some way. I saw a news article just the other week um, about the largest producer of pornography in the world has donated a massive amount of money to, fight help, uh, to, sorry, to help fight against the sex trade in North America. Meanwhile, it has been proven multiple times, time and time and time again, that a large amount of the women on this producer's website are actually people that are in the sex trafficking trade. So these people have been trafficked, and they appear in videos, and they go on this website, and now this company pretends to care about this fighting sex trafficking. See, they don't actually care, because if they actually cared, these things wouldn't be on their website. They wouldn't produce this kind of stuff. But they pretend to care because it benefits them. They pretend to care because it makes them look good. It makes them look like they're, they're caring. But Paul says Timothy's not like that. He says, Timothy actually does care. He actually is concerned with your well-being. He first and foremost is a servant. See, when we get to heaven, we aren't looking to hear the words, all right, first place, way to go, all right, nice job, you won, right? We're not looking to hear that. When we get to heaven, we want to hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant, well done. That's what we want to hear. And that's what Timothy was wanting to hear. He was wanting to put others first. He genuinely put others first. He was a servant through and through. So Timothy put people first. Over everything else, he put people first. Point number two is that your character is priority number one. I realize that might sound a little bit weird, that point number two is that your character is number one. But that's what it means. Point number two, your character is priority number one. Verse 22 to 24 says, But you know that Timothy has proven himself. Like a son with his father, he has served me in the work of the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon as well. Some people here have served in the trades. 
Um, we have a lot of members of our congregation that have been in the trades in some format, or, or some have been in healthcare or other uh, professions that are similar. We might just even be familiar with what the term apprentice means. Timothy was Paul's apprentice, so to speak. So Timothy was an apprentice to Paul. So essentially, he was training to be like Paul. He was training to be an evangelist. He was training to be able to take the gospel to other cities. He was training to be able to go and speak about the things that Jesus Christ had shown. Paul says about this apprentice, he says, Timothy has proven himself. He said he has proven himself. He has, he has passed, essentially. Timothy had proven that he was the right kind of person. He had the right character, the right attitude, the right motives. He had the right character. If we know one thing about Paul, we know that he was a blunt person. Uh, if I was living 2,000 years ago, I would not want it to have received a letter from Paul because Paul never pulled any punches. He was quite blunt. He told her how it was. I can just imagine churches opening this letter being like, all right, we got a letter from Paul. Okay, we got a letter from Paul, right? And having to read one of the, some of the things that he says out from the front. His letters are full of critiques and criticisms. They are done in a healthy way and in a way that he intends to, to build others up and intends to bring others closer to Christ, but they can be a little bit hard to read. But here, of, character, or of Timothy's character, he's just singing his praises. He's not slamming him. He's not saying he's immature, he doesn't have anything to do, he, don't bring him over yet. He says he has proven himself. This means a lot. It means he's finished, or he is at least at a point where Paul can say, yeah, no, he's good to go. I trust him to do everything in this ministry. But see, this proving himself didn't happen instantly. Even today, uh, apprenticeships, they don't take, or they don't happen instantly. Some can take two years. Some take three or four. Some can take up to five years. I did an apprenticeship when I was younger, and essentially what it was was a couple of years of me learning from someone who knew what they were doing. I was learning by watching and then learning by doing while they did. And then eventually it was learning while I did and they watched what I was doing. It was essentially me learning from someone who knew so much more than I did. Eventually, I was approved as an apprentice. I'm kind of in one of those even right now. I'm in the middle of my ordination period. Essentially, that means for the last year and a bit or so, I have been learning from someone much wiser and more experienced in the roles of a pastor. The, this, this supervisor gives me feedback. He gives me encouragements and criticisms. He gives me uh, advice to navigate tough issues. And at the end of this all, basically, it's up to him to kind of give his stamp and say, yes, I think Lucas is ready for this. Lucas has proven himself. Here's, here's my okay or here's my approval. But see, a supervisor like, like my supervisor or like Timothy's supervisor, who was Paul, he's not just looking for if I have a really nice suit. Uh, or if I can do really cool, flashy graphics for my sermons. Or if I know how to write a three-point sermon and have all the points start with the same letter. Right? He's looking for a lot deeper things than that. They're looking to see if I have the character of a pastor. If I have the character of someone set to take the gospel out. That's what Paul was looking for in Timothy. He didn't care if Timothy had the best preaching sandals in the nation. Or if Timothy had the most commentaries on his shelf. Paul was looking at Timothy's character. He was looking at who Timothy was. He says he has proven himself. He's ready. Timothy's character is ready to go. So character matters so much more than flash or pizzazz. Point number three is that teamwork makes the dream work. And we see this in the next group of verses. It says, but I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker and fellow soldier 
who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. That's verses 25. See, Epaphroditus, we don't know a ton about him. He was a leader in the Philippian church, and the church had actually sent him to Paul. They had sent him to be uh, their messenger, but also to the minister that Paul of, or sorry, to minister to Paul's needs. Um, you know, as a prisoner, he wasn't likely able to just go out and about and do whatever he wanted. He had some needs, and so the, the Philippian church sent him as their kind of representative. And Paul, about this representative, describes him with a couple of words. He says he is like a brother. He says he's a fellow worker, a fellow soldier. The other term that he uses, he says he's a messenger, or he's your messenger. The word that the Greek word here, the definition of that Greek word means one who is sent to represent the uh, opinions of another. We have a word for that as well, and it's called ambassador. And that's our theme for the year, is to be ambassadors for Christ. So Epaphroditus was the ambassador on the behalf of the Philippian church. This is high praise from Paul. To have Paul say, like a brother, an ambassador, a fellow soldier, and a fellow worker, this is high praise. He puts all four of these terms together, and he makes it pretty clear that Paul thinks really well of Epaphroditus. He thinks very well of him. He thinks he's a good person, and he has good character here. What's really noticeable, though, is that Paul isn't singing his own praises. He's not saying, look, I'm going to send your guy back to you because I've been doing this all by myself, and I'm so good at it, I actually don't need Epaphroditus anymore. Um, I'm just so good at being Paul, you can have him back because I don't need anyone else's help. Right? He doesn't sing any of those things. He doesn't say anything about himself. He actually just says all good things about Epaphroditus. He says he is working and fighting the same spiritual battles that Paul is working in. Paul wasn't bragging about how much he was able to do, but he was bragging about how great Epaphroditus has been to help him in his ministry. You could say that they worked together for the gospel. See, Paul didn't care who got the credit. Paul didn't write back to the Philippian church to say, yeah, I'm going to send you know, Epaphroditus back. He was all right, but let me tell you all the amazing things I'm doing right now. He wrote back saying he's been so good and he's done so many amazing things because he didn't care if Paul got the credit. And I don't think we should care who gets the credit either. We are not in this for our credit. We aren't in this for our glory. We're not in this because we want to be praised, but we're in this because we want God to get the glory. We want God to be praised. God gets all the credit. We're here for him. So we're not here to serve ourselves. We're not here so that we get any of that credit. When we run a successful event at the church, if, if, a thing, if we put on an event and it goes really, really well, many people want to say, Luke, great event. Luke, awesome job. But truthfully, I, I usually didn't do very much of the work. Truthfully, there was usually a whole committee of people that did much more work than I. There are people that show up earlier than I do, and I live there, so I don't really have an excuse there are people that show up and put hours and hours and hours of work in. Even just the, the tape and the X's that you are sitting on right now. I didn't do those things. I was here and I did other things, but there were others that showed up and put in hours of work. They didn't do it to get any of the credit. They didn't sign their beautiful artwork X's saying, done by so-and-so. They did it just because they wanted to serve. And so we're not concerned or we shouldn't be concerned with getting the credit. We should simply be happy to be part of the team that serves the Lord. One thing I've really enjoyed living out front is that on the front yard, I get to see who comes to the church. I get to be a bit of a snoop. Um, from my kitchen table, I can see who's here. Um, and I see people when they drive in. And I see who's here every day. I see who's here sometimes multiple times a day. 
I've seen who's been here every day almost for the last 14 weeks gardening. And sometimes I'm curious, and sometimes I come over and say hello, and, and sometimes I don't because I don't want to get suckered into gardening because I'm no good at it, and I'd kill all our plants. <laughs> but sometimes it's nice just to look and see people who are here and not asking for any credit. They come, and they just serve, and they go home. They just want to come, and they want to serve. They don't here to be recognized or to be praised. They're just here to serve God and to serve our friends and our neighbors. They don't seek credit for what they're done. They're just happy to be on the team. And see, Paul is saying that. Paul is saying teamwork. He's saying, I, I'm not seeking credit for everything that I've done. I'm happy to be on the same team as Epaphroditus and you Philippians. He's singing the praises over that guy. And Epaphroditus is literally not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament. We don't know anything else about him. He's only mentioned in Philippians. And of this guy who's mentioned nowhere else, Paul has nothing but good things to say about him here. This was a reminder, a reminder for me, actually, this week as I was writing this. I was a reminder that uh, it doesn't matter who has the biggest church. It's not about who has the largest church in Cambridge. It's not about who added the most members this year or, or who did the most baptisms this year. You know, when the church down the road does 100 baptisms in one day, I shouldn't be jealous that we didn't baptize 100 people that day. But instead, I should celebrate with that church. I should celebrate 100 people giving their lives over to Jesus. And so when we, we look back and remember that we're on the same team and that our church here and the church down the road, we're working towards the same goal, we can truly sing their praises. We can truly rejoice with them in their successes. We can truly rejoice as being part of the same team, working towards the same goal. So teamwork makes the dream work. And so our final point, or point number four, is about kingdom over comfort. It says, For he longed for all of you, and he is distressed because you heard that he was ill. And indeed he was ill, and he almost died. But God had mercy on him. Not only on him, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. This life is not easy going. It's not all easy going. Someone once said to me, uh, Luke, I just gave my life to God. I just became a Christian, and it seems like my life has only gotten harder since I did that. It seems like life has only gotten tougher since I became a Christian. And I thought, how appropriate. How appropriate of a response. It seems to resonate that with the words that Jesus said when Jesus said, in this life, you will have suffering. And this person's experience seemed to resonate exactly with that. Now, Paul knew this personally. Paul experienced suffering in his own life. But it also, he also reminds the Philippians that Epaphroditus evidently knew this too, that this life was not all easygoing, that being a Christian was not about being more comfortable. It was an 800-mile journey by boat to go from Philippi to Rome. I don't know how many kilometers that is, but it's a lot. 800-mile journey from Philippi to Rome. Now, this isn't a nice boat. We're not talking uh, a great cruise liner like the Titanic. Um, hopefully, one that didn't sink, though. But a great big cruise liner. We're not talking about a nice ship that had, you know, shuffleboard and buffets and a band that played... We're talking more like riding in a pirate ship, like if you've ever seen uh, Jack Sparrow and you've ever seen Pirates of the Caribbean. We're talking more about a little boat of wood with not much on it going 800 miles. This isn't like a Disney cruise across the ocean. Many long boat trips in this period ended in disease and death. Because these small boats, and it was such a tiny place with usually a lot of people living in them. 
over an extended period of time, and they didn't exactly have the cleanest hygiene standards. They didn't have showers on board. They didn't have Lysol wipes to pass around so that everyone would be, you know, cleaning up after themselves. They didn't have those things. And so disease was really common. And Epaphroditus evidently got very sick. It says, Paul says he nearly died. He was so sick, he almost died. But the thing is that Epaphroditus likely knew that this was possible before he got on the ship. He didn't get on thinking he was going on a luxury cruise liner. He got on the ship probably knowing exactly what was in store for him, exactly what could happen if he gets on this. So if he knew about these dangers beforehand, why would he get on the ship? Why would he get on a ship knowing it was going to be a terribly uncomfortable journey and disease was likely? Why would he risk that? Well, the answer is because Jesus did not call us to a life of comfort. He didn't call us to a comfortable Christian life. See, I think many of us have become very comfortable being Christians. We like that we can do church on a nice time on Sunday mornings. We like that we have coffee and cookies. We like that we try to keep the service about an hour, and if it goes over, we'll make sure we let Lucas know. We like that the pews are padded because we want them to be comfortable. Um, we like these things, and we like a comfortable Christianity. We like Bible study at a convenient hour after we've done everything else. We don't want it to go too long. We like it. It's convenient. It's comfortable. And those aren't bad things. It's not bad to enjoy some of the comforts of Christianity. It's, it's not bad. I'm not calling us to change all our services to 6 a.m. because, truthfully, I don't want to come and preach at 6 a.m. It's not bad to enjoy some of the comforts, but I think that that is what sometimes we look for. We look for Christianity to be comfortable. And if it's uncomfortable, then we might not want part of it. See, if we took away all the comforts of Christianity and said, hey, uh, next week for church, we're actually all going to get on this really tiny rowboat, uh, and we're going to have a two- to three-week journey across a really stormy lake to a foreign land where you know none of the customs, uh, and we don't speak the language. Um, also, we don't know if there's going to be food or if we're all going to survive the journey. So um, see you guys next week. I think that most of us probably wouldn't show up. I think that we would have a few emails saying, oh, I just I actually can't be there. I have, a, I have a thing. I'm busy. I think we would be a little bit uncomfortable with it. See, we do like comfort, and especially in the West, we have grown very accustomed to comfort. But Jesus says that that's not what being a Christian is about. Being a Christian is not about being comfortable. It's not about having a comfortable, easygoing life. And so I think we need to be ready to give up all that comfort. At a moment's notice, if God calls us to go across an 800-mile journey by boat, we need to be ready to do that. God says, I want you to give up all your comforts and I want you to move to this town where you know nobody and you have no family and I want you to serve me there. We have to be ready to say, okay, yes, no problem. Because we're called to do kingdom work, not comfort work. See, we don't sometimes like change. Sometimes we don't like changes that happen in church. And I think we don't like changes, not because the change itself is bad, but because it just makes us uncomfortable. It's something new and so I'm not comfortable with it yet. We don't like the new music. Or we don't like the new meeting time, or I don't like the new carpet in the foyer. It makes me uncomfortable, so I don't like it. I don't like doing this new mission opportunity because I don't like to be around those people because they make me uncomfortable. And so we go to find a different church sometimes when that happens, a church that makes us more comfortable, a church that's easier. But see, we have to remember that God never called us to a life of comfort. He called us to a life of service. He said, along the way, I call you to this life of service, and along the way, you're going to have suffering. It's going to be tough. 
See, Epaphroditus knew there were risks, but even more than that, he knew that his life was about to be spent serving God. And so as he went, he said, I'm ready to go and to even risk death to serve you, God. I'm even ready to risk death. G.K. Chesterton uh, said that the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. See, Christianity is not easy, and it's not about being comfortable. It's about doing comfort work, or sorry, kingdom work, not comfort work. And so my question at the end of all this is, are we like Timothy and Epaphroditus? Are we willing to risk our safety and our comfort in serving the Lord? Are we willing to work on the same team as others? Are we willing to rejoice in the glory, in the success of others so that we can all together give the glory to God instead of competing for our own glory? Has our character passed the test? Would, call Paul, or would Paul call us proven? And are we willing to put others first? Are we willing to put the needs of everyone else first and to serve our own needs last? How far are we willing to go as Christians? What are we willing to do for God? See, we are called to imitate Jesus, and I think these two men serve as examples of people who were imitating Jesus. And so I think that we can go and imitate them as they imitate Jesus. But are we willing to go as far as them? Are we willing to do that? Is our life worthy of others imitating us? Is it worthy of others imitating what we do as we follow Jesus? And if not, why? What is it that we need to change in our life, perhaps? What is it that we need to, to reorient so that one day Paul might write a letter and might say, imitate blank, and insert your name there, as they imitate Jesus? What do we need to do to do that? Let's pray. God, we thank you for the many examples of people in the Bible, the many examples of beacons of faith, of people of faith, that, Lord, we can look to them as they look to you and as, as we seek to model our lives after you, Lord, they serve as an example for us to also follow in their footsteps. And so, Lord, we thank you for the examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus today. Father, may we have a faith like theirs, one that is willing to, to, to put everything on the line, to risk all of our comfort in serving you. Lord, may our character pass the test May we be worthy of others imitating us, Father. Jesus, may we be willing to put others first. Might we be a people that serves the needs of others before our own needs. Father, we just thank you for your examples. We thank you for what you do in our lives. And Lord, would you challenge us where there are places of our lives that we need to change to, to be more imitating you, Jesus. Would you challenge us? Would you chisel away at those parts of our life? And Lord, would you help us to endure that process if it's a painful one? But Father, would you help us as we imitate you? We thank you for everything you do. In Jesus' name, amen.